Great Tea Talk. I'm your host, Dr. Annabelle Bugatti, licensed marriage and family therapist and certified emotionally focused therapist here in Las Vegas, Nevada. And we are welcoming back Michael Barnett. He is one of our beloved trainers in Atlanta, Georgia. He's the director of the Atlanta Center for Emotionally Focused Therapy. And he's done a lot of research in trauma and addiction, and he has some great things coming up. He's also an LPC. And he's gonna talk to us today about our special topic, which is shame and addiction. And so I hope you guys uh, really get some good nuggets out of this. So welcome back, Michael. Thank you, Annabelle. It's great to see you again and Happy New Year. It's good to be back. Yeah, Happy New Year to everyone. And thank you again for agreeing to come back and talk to us some more. And so tell us, so let's start off. So we know that shame is a huge part of addiction, but let's kind of start off with maybe a working definition of shame. How would you kind of describe it to our folks out there? Um, you know, that's actually a bigger question than most people think. Oftentimes people, I think, um, oversimplify it and they'll do it in contrast to talking about guilt as feeling about something you bad about something you did, shame feeling bad about who you are. Mm -hmm. The reason I say I think that's a, a really huge uh, reduction or oversimplification is because I think shame shows up both, not both, it shows up as a, an emotion. I think it shows up uh, as potency of introjects from other people's disapproval, dissatisfaction. I think it is a, uh, something that is akin to a working model and so I think it just takes on such a wide, wide set of experiences and processes. And that being said, the ultimate overarching experience is people having some kind of shame or, I mean, some kind of pain or disdain toward themselves, some kind of dislike toward self, disapproval toward self, so much so that they want to hide. Right. For our work, that becomes problematic. Right. And this is more than just low self-esteem. I mean, lots of people have low self-esteem, but this is to more of an extremity. This is an extremity and it's about identity. It's about identity, right? That this is right. woven into who and what I am. Right. That anything around identity therapeutically is much harder to work with. It's much harder to tease apart identity. It's much harder to work with kind of action tendencies and strategies that have either helped protect, support, or maintain people's identity. So this one gets really sticky, as I know all of us in yeah. EFT land are all psychotherapists mm -hmm. experience. This is Absolutely. So you're saying shame is really more tied to identity. And I think for some of our therapists, maybe one of the uh, most obvious ways that this might show up with our clients is you might hear one of your clients say something like the way they make sense of or organize why things happen to them, like bad things in particular, is because they are bad or they're unworthy in some way. They're not good enough. This goes back to a fundamental deficit of who they are. And that's why either they don't get the love that they need or that happen or they constantly feel less than or kind of alienated from others and that's that is really hard to work with it is really hard to work with and even the way you're front loading that is really useful i think in that it starts to point to a narrative that's going to play out uh behavior action right so part of what you were saying is maybe there's a way somebody gets stuck or somebody can't receive love 
or somebody actually just goes into a shame spiral or goes into a bit of a rage. Right. And part of what's happening if we hold that moment is they're telling themselves something. It's an old narrative about how they feel and who they are and who they aren't, right? Mm-hmm. Oftentimes people haven't distilled that. They haven't made that conscious. They haven't made it clear. So we help them with that. But these rivers run really deep. Yes. And that's what I think we bump into. And, and part of my initial comment about a caution in defining it in a really reductionistic way is I think it's a place where so many of us get stuck. And we, want, we all want to have a, a simple, easy, clear, um, black and white way of understanding how to move through this. And it is so nebulous. And I don't think there is a clear cut. There's certain things we can do. And I think certain qualities that we bring uh, naturally as an EFT therapist, the stance we take of empathy and understanding people's humanity and holding people in a non-pathologizing way where we're really trying to see their humanness and what led them to that. I think that in and of itself is healing. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of what we bring to the environment in the room is are some of the uh, necessary conditions to help people move through this if they can and if we can help them. So you're saying necessary conditions. You know, these are kind of the uh, environment of the safe haven within the therapy room that helps someone feel safe enough that they can explore these really scary parts of themselves, right? Because most, most of our clients are very afraid of these places, all this pain, how deep it goes. Most of us are too. It's human. No one wants to touch this stuff. Like this is, this is in its purest form, the stuff of the Pandora's box. Mm-hmm. And all of us disown parts of self because they feel so un- overwhelming to get in touch with. So yes. we're moving people into some of this. We can be opening the door to some pretty deep and dark work. Mm-hmm. It's hard. I love that you use the analogy of Pandora's box because in the fairy tale Pandora's box at the very bottom of the box is hope. And that's us. <laughs> that's where we come in. <laughs> that's right. So you were talking about the safe haven that is so important. And again, I, I, would, I would really want to underscore the piece about our alliance and our willingness to really engage with somebody in a way that we may hold their humanity in a way that they can't yet. And I think people can feel that, even if we're not explicitly naming it. They feel the way we're relating to them. They feel our way of holding them in a very positive light. They also feel us not pathologizing them. Right. Right? And, and our way of joining people with such empathy and consideration goes a really, really long way. If you go through kind of, to some degree, a meta-analysis of some of the more useful and significant literature on shame, it all comes back to the qualities of attachment. Yeah. In a relationship where someone knows that they are cared for and seen and are willing to talk about what's going on in that way with a sense of interest. Every single, every single article I've read or every single book I've read always comes back to that. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many times I've had clients come in where they've seen previous therapists and did feel really pathologized you know, kind of put into a box. And I think when people are pathologized, it feels very dismissive and invalidating to their pain. And that's really hard. That's really hard for them because one of the best and biggest gifts we can give to them is acceptance, is to see them exactly for who they are and let them know that you are not this defective human being. You know, you're a human and 
this is normal, you're not alone, and, and you are capable and worthy of love. Absolutely. And I have to say, one of the tricky things about shame, and you've probably encountered this, is when we bring something like that to people explicitly, sometimes they push it away. They can't tolerate being seen wrong. They can't tolerate being held in a positive light. It's, it's such a mismatch for their own personal experience. It's hard for them to hold that moment. And this other voice, this other experience, this other set of narratives come up that are really adamantly holding on to this place of, I'm not worthy of that, right? Yeah. That's where the work gets hard. That's the hard work. Because yeah. the things we're stating and setting up in EFT and bringing as a therapist in many ways are very difficult for people to tolerate when they're in that place. And, and now it's really sticky stuff. It's really hard to work with. That's right. And, and in shame, I think a lot of therapists, when we see it, we want to go right to it and kind of love the person. Mm -hmm. And we can be really gung-ho about it, but this is somebody who's oftentimes kind of put up a shield or a guard, you know, to protect themselves from pain, but it's also protected themselves from feeling loved because they see themselves as fundamentally unworthy or broken and defective. And so when they see themselves as broken and defective and you go to them, even though out of love and empathy, of course it's going to be hard to take that in because everything in their body says, that's not really who I am. I'm still defective. How could you love me? If you really knew me, you, you wouldn't love me, you know, or you wouldn't think that I'm lovable. And so, of course, it's at first you feel that kind of them pushing back on it or, you know, as a basic therapeutic terms might describe it as resistance. But I know EFT, we have such a lovely and better way of, of understanding resistance, but that's where that shame comes up, right? Shame can be such a big block to letting somebody feel and see themselves through a new set of eyes. Oh, absolutely. Again, we're talking identity, and mm -hmm. an ironic thing about identity is the familiarity of understanding who we are and who we aren't is very mm -hmm. stabilizing. Mm -hmm. And we often think about shame as destabilizing, Yes. But if that's how we understand ourselves and the therapist is starting to open the door to some other place, all of a sudden somebody's on very shaky ground, right? Yeah. Not familiar with it, actually not quite in a place where they know how to love themselves yet, and the therapist is opening up a door that starts to create this off-balance excitement. I, a long time ago, way before I, I found EFT, I was running a training, and it was very experiential, attachment-based uh, in retrospect, um, body centered and was working with a guy he moved right into this place you and I are talking about and the therapist that ran this really really big practice got so anxious herself she came rushing into the group opened her purse pulled out a compact and she started saying to this man look at this look in this mirror you can tell you're a good person now of course we know that's not going to create change right he just kind of bristled but my point in bringing that up is it's hard for therapists and I wish me or any of us had kind of the magic wand or the magic potion or solution that could help that change more quickly. And mm -hmm. I think that's the issue, help it change more quickly. But we don't. And sometimes people can disengage from it more rapidly than others. But the people and our clients that get really stuck there for a while, that persistence is really, really hard to work with. And it can be very um, either anxiety provoking for us or kind of demoralizing for us. We can put therapists kind of on the hot seat. And that's what happened with this therapist for sure. 
But I think it happens for all of us from time to time when we're working with shame. It's very difficult. And I think one of the, the one of the misnomers, I don't think that's even the right word, but misconceptions, is that we should be able to like peel through this much more quickly. And if we're not, there's something wrong with our therapeutic skills and there isn't. It's yeah. very difficult. And I just want to underscore that. We are talking about a very, very difficult topic right now in my yeah. experience. Absolutely, absolutely. And I love you know, what you said is kind of, and I do see this a lot from therapists, and, and I myself have felt this is kind of like, how come you won't let me love you, right? Like, I, I see that you're such a good and amazing human being. Why can't you see that? Why won't you let me in, <laughs> you know? But these are years and years and years, a lifetime of these beliefs. And, you know, I think for the client, this is where we kind of come back to that fast is slow in EFT, right? Being patient and not kind of getting a little overly zealous, like let's jump in there. Our client's not quite ready for that. But the more we try to push our own pace and take it fast, the more resistant and the more guarded the client is going to be. But the more we can slow down and just walk them through this and be with them, the faster they're going to be able to start dropping their guard bit by bit, and you're actually going to be able to reach something. So it feels like it could be a little tug of war, like, let me in. And they're like, no, no. <laughs> the more you just, you know, almost relax and just, just take it at a very steady pace. Obviously, you know, attunement is huge mm -hmm. to get the pace from the client, but you know, it's that, that slower is faster mentality. And it really is true. It is true. And again, pacing is a key component to working well with shame or any really deep emotion. And I would also say timing. Mm -hmm. Someone might not be ready to hear that or see that about themselves just yet. And we have to, unfortunately, there isn't more of a manualized way of talking about this other than tuning into our spidey senses or tuning with the person. We may even take a step and you know, oh my gosh, we pushed too hard, so we're not ready to go there yet. But that's good data, and we can explore things and help people work with it from um, more of the shallow end of the pool. If that, if that yeah. Right. So can you maybe give some examples of what it might look like when the therapist tries to go there and the client does kind of show that they're not ready to go there quite yet? Well, we've talked about one of them where people insist you know, it, it's about them and everything that's happening uh, that's problematic is about them, right? Um, my partner feels pain because I did X, Y, or Z or didn't do X, Y, and Z. It's really because I'm such a bad person. I can't believe I've hurt her in that way. And we try to track what's going on in a certain way and even put that more of an appraisal or a narrative. Um, and yet people fight us tooth and nail, staying in a place and really having to um, dig their heels in about being a bad person. Sometimes it shows up, we step a little too fast and someone gets pissed at us. We get this, we get this anger response, this heat, this fire comes at us and they get pissed and we've just hit a raw spot in a certain way. You see people shut down. The, the more stereotyped way of going into a shame spiral, right, is someone literally starts looking down we feel them almost collapse inside themselves. We have a very difficult time accessing them and bringing them back up. I mean, I think we've probably all encountered these things, right? It can, there can be many, face, many faces of pain, uh, or at least behaviorally, and I think that's what we're talking about right here. So my hunch is every one of us 
who does this work and every everybody listening has bumped into these kinds of places, right? We want to help people get behind that if possible, but that's not always a, a quick and easy process. As a matter of fact, it says quite the opposite. Yeah, yeah. I, and I think more when shame is less obvious, it's hiding more beneath the surface that the client isn't as open about their view of self. And, and I guess, you know, one of the examples that comes to mind is I've had a client who just digs in and, and will not give me her view of self. And I got it one time. And in that one time, it was this very light, like just the words could barely escape her mouth that said something about it could mean that I'm not lovable. Wow. And that was it. You know, it was it was one flash into that moment, but and and it illuminated so much because for so long, you know, I'm trying to get underneath this client's pro and it's not always with jars that have shame, you know. Sometimes yeah. you know, we have pursuers that have shame. And <laughs> this, you know, fundamental core, but I, I could not get there, could not get there. And I'm thinking, gosh, what's going on? What's going on? Why can't I get to this view of self? And it, it was that shame piece. And shame is just, can be so powerful and almost debilitating. And, and too, you know, so, so let's tie this into addiction. So oftentimes, you know, we see shame very much with addiction. I also find it coupled with depression, and depression is also coupled with addiction. And most of my depressed clients have had those really negative views of self. I'm unworthy. That's why I don't go to anyone. And, of course, you feel sad and terrible. But then carrying the sadness or the shame or this really negative view of myself is hard to carry. So we've got to do something with all those painful emotions and Sometimes addiction is an easy way to numb it out, to basically cover it up and make it to where we can function. So tell us a little bit more about how you see shame and addiction. This is kind of your specialty. So sometimes I have a mental image in working with addiction. It looks a little bit like a flow chart. So we're working with addictive processes and we're looking at addiction as more or less an action tendency um, that makes perfect sense within the framework of attachment. Um, if people have had great distress and or abuse or challenging experiences that have uh, been extremely emotional or overwhelming emotionally, and there are, there's not the presence of a consistent loving other, and there is a presence of substances or processes that take the edge off. It's an easy go-to that works very quickly. And it's a way of regulating um, great distressing affect. So I start there. And what I have encountered and one of the ways I think about working with addiction is you scratch the surface of addiction and we usually have some form of trauma. Whether it's relational trauma, people like to call that lowercase t, or people have had much more overt, intense trauma. And so when we're working with trauma and we're talking about trauma, the self is almost always affected and people's ways of seeing themselves as valuable, lovable, mattering, worthy 
is always part and parcel of the process and very, very negatively impacted. The other side of that coin is also people don't seem to be so trustworthy or helpful or consistent or reliable or safe. Mm -hmm. So both sides of those coin, that coin can lend themselves to people having an identity that is based on not being good, lovable, et cetera. So we start paying attention to addiction and we see what it is regulating, what it is masking, what it is helping people keep at bay. And oftentimes we start peeling back the layers of the onion, we create enough safety. And it's the very things you and I have already started talking about that people feel so bad about who they are. And so there's no easy place to live comfortably within their own skin. So using whatever it is, again, substances or behaviors, processes, is a very quick, reliable way of taking at least the edge off, if not staying completely numb altogether. Does that's, that help you offer a frame? That was absolutely, your absolutely. And, you know, I like how you said most often at the core of this is trauma, especially, you know, I think one of the hallmarks you mentioned that that makes trauma so debilitating is the absence of that safe other, that attachment figure. Oftentimes you have clients who have been abused. Um, a lot of times this is by an attachment figure or someone close by, but there, there wasn't an attachment figure who intervened or protected them or oftentimes maybe turned on them and gave them this belief like this happened, it's your fault, or you're lying, you're making it up, this didn't really happen. Those are huge betrayals where something terrible just happened to you and the people who should be there to protect you and love you and counteract this damage, you know, help you deal and adjust and make sense of it, aren't there for you. And in fact, sometimes they're giving you a worse view and when they're telling you it's your fault which is terrible. It's terrible. And so, of course, people are going to turn inside to themselves and develop this negative view. And addiction, like you said, becomes a very easy way to take that edge off. And, and nowadays, we have a new layer of addiction, which is those process addictions that you mentioned. Can you talk a little bit more about process addictions? Yeah, process addictions... Um are basically a form of behavioral addiction. So we could look at porn use, um, sexual compulsivity, gambling, um, eating. There are, there are numerous, we could go down the line, but those are probably the ones that show up and are some of the more challenging ones that we work with, especially relationally when we're working with either porn or people's sexual compulsivity. There was another point I wanted to actually add to some of what you're talking about. Because we are mostly speaking about our experience and working with couples, there are a whole bunch of tributaries I see coming out of that. And one part is we are connecting addiction and trauma underneath it. And I would say some version of shame feels to me to always lie underneath trauma. Mm -hmm. Although relationally speaking, people can have very, very painful interactive experiences, let's say with a parent growing up where a parent's very disapproving or a parent's very critical or might have a temper. And I would have to say, I, I know we talk about little t trauma, 
But I think some of the work that I'm talking about is a little bit bigger than that, more, more trending toward a capital T. Little T trauma, those things happen and there's been no repair. Like, as a parent, I could certainly say, and I think every parent could, and if you can't, you're lying, that there are times we cross a line, we get pissed at our kids, or we uh, respond in a way where we're not putting our best foot forward. And hopefully what we're doing afterwards is saying, hey, you know what? I'm really sorry about the way I talked to you about that. You know, what I was trying to say was important, but I think the way I talked to you really hurt you. And let's talk about that. And I want to make sure that you're okay. There's repair. But that doesn't always happen in families. And someone who is a child of a parent who has a behavior like that that goes on and on and on repetitively without the repair can start gaining a way of understanding themselves that can be extremely shame-based. That's reparative. Take it to another level and you started to knock on this door. If people have been harmed, especially by people who they have an attachment relationship with, the closer the attachment relationship, the greater the harm, the more impact neurobiologically there is, right? And the harder the work becomes. Uh, under addiction, we see a lot of that. And that is much more difficult work. Um, I was listening to a conversation that Bessel van der Kolk was having, and part of the way he framed something, he took the notion of dissociation to a very different level. And he said, currently, we talk about this in common parlance as somebody kind of checking out when they leave the window of tolerance and they can no longer stay balanced and tolerate that much emotion. But he said, initially this phrase was meant that people actually had a whole other set of memories, sensory experiences, narratives, they had to keep disintegrated from their psyche. And certain things in the world would bring those up. When people are using, they in some ways are preventing that from happening that somehow I will not be as sensitive to the different kind of cues. I've been a combat veteran who is traumatized and maybe every time a door slams, now that I'm using, doesn't grab me the same way. That kind of thing. It's a way, ironically, of trying to create some stabilization, but what we know is it actually adds only more fuel to the fire. And this is where it gets really, really tricky for those of us who are working with addiction in our practices, because there really is a level of trauma underneath having a framework for trauma is extremely important. So it's a, it's a pretty pretty thick stew. Yeah. Working with couples processes where people are activating each other, right? And all, and when the attachment system is getting activated and the use of model and self are coming up like crazy. Um, people using, which often creates more damage or sometimes even injuries within the relationship. And then sometimes their behavior becomes a little more erratic. So they're getting angrier or lashing out more or less responsible or going away for a couple of days on end for a binge and then feeling terrible because they know they've hurt the person they love. And there's where the shame comes in. Yeah. It's very complex is all I'm trying to say. We're talking about something that's so big right now. And um, again, one of the things I want to echo that I said earlier, I think there can be kind of a misconception that if we're only good enough and adept enough, we can really um, get to the heart of this quickly and rapidly and help people have a different experience. And I think it takes time, especially if people have really had very, very difficult, painful experiences in their lives. Yeah, yeah. You, you said you hit the nail on the head. It really does take time. And, you know, being able to unpack this experience and rushing through it is definitely not going to help at all. And, you know, there's that whole other layer of addiction. And one of the things that kind of um, popped up for me as you were talking about that 
is oftentimes when we're working with addicts and they do have trauma, even when they don't have trauma underneath so much, they, of course, we see it as a problem and their partner's probably seeing it as a problem, but a lot of times they don't see it as a problem. And probably one of the most, like, coolest things that I've ever heard that helped me with this is that, that's right, the addict doesn't see it as a problem, they see it as a solution. Right. So when you see the solution, now you've got to look for the problem that they're using it as a solution to. Ah, that makes it so much more, like, just completely opens that up and, and makes a new entry point because a lot of us do feel blocked when the client does not see their addiction as a problem that they're using it to self-medicate. So, you know, the, the good news, yes, you're right. The good news is, though, what we do in EFT begins to give access to people owning that better and better. So in addiction training, I run a master class, a weekend master class, and started to really hone in on people would call that denial, right? Mm -hmm. not, not the unconscious psychological process of denial, which is disowning something so the psyche can stay stable and survive, but ignoring my, if we were to use our language, our action tendency, right? And it's usually because there's so much shame involved. Then I have to take ownership and look at the damage I'm causing, right? Mm -hmm. So we have ways of helping people ultimately take ownership of that. And also, <clears throat> when we flip it around and get underneath addiction as an action tendency, it humanizes what's happening. For, it humanizes the addict. People, for the most part, and I'll clarify what I'm meaning by for the most part in a second. For the most part, if people have a loving, reliable other to be able to lean into in times of distress, they don't, uh, they don't really um, develop addictive habits because they don't have to. They have someone that they can lean into and then they can get regulated again uh, through the relationship and get their legs underneath them and their feet on the ground and feel loved. I think we, you know, the current epidemic that everybody's aware of is the opioid epidemic. And the reason I bring that in it might sound like a non sequitur, but it, it, it's very related to what we're talking about. The reason I say that is we have this new wave, and it's not even that new, but this new wave of addiction that has not started or does not emanate from a lack, a lack of a healthy attachment environment necessarily, but people are being given very, very strong medications for illnesses or medical procedures or surgical issues, and they are extremely addictive. And all of a sudden, that takes on a life of its own. Right? And we all know, or have read countless stories of people just going down the tubes. And it doesn't speak to necessarily their attachment environments. Something else has happened. That's a whole other animal, as a matter of fact. But I really do believe the work that we are trained to do, and I think we do so well in EFT, would be getting behind somebody's or underneath somebody's action tendency. And if we can get to that place that an addict is seeing this as a solution, the next question, of course, is a solution to what? And the answer to that is their pain. And that they're having to go through solving their pain alone. And that's all they've known. Now we have a whole different experience that we're creating. And if that person can lean into their partner, right, with the pain, and have a partner start responding, we start creating a substitute for the addiction over time through attachment. I know we're talking more about addiction right now than, than shame. I hope that's okay, but they were kind of they're, they're both tied, so yeah, they're they are tied. Right. So can you help us understand, you know, you mentioned helping them take ownership, which, 
you know, I, I hear a lot of therapists get really anxious about how do we help them take ownership. And, and you want to do this in a very empathic kind of way, because if we yeah. jump the gun, it's going to feel very blaming. And again, pathologizing, which really feels invalidating to their pain. They have pain and they want to be seen in that pain. But how can we empathically put this behavior into the cycle in stage one? That's an awesome question. And that it requires really hard work. So my experience more often than not, and given that that's my experience more often than not, I'm assuming most of us have similar experiences on that uniqueness. We'll start to get very clear that part of what's organizing the cycle is addiction. And if we have a partner who is using and not taking responsibility for that, what usually seems to be playing out in front of me is chaos. And it's very interesting to pay attention to it because when you hear people talking about the chaos, they're almost not naming the addiction. Even the person who is on the receiving end of that, the partner, is not naming it because things become very dramatic and escalate oftentimes goes way off point. And there's a process outside of what we would normally talk about in EFT. It's more psychodynamic, but it gave me a handhold. In looking at how often, and again, I think shame is driving this thing, a using partner will move into projection and minimization. And what they start doing is a partner makes a confrontation about something. You came home late again or you spent the entire paycheck again, and they say something like, you have no idea how hard it's been for me. And they bring up some really juicy topic that there's a kernel of truth. And next thing you know, the partner's responding to this other thing. And then it becomes very heated and um, there are all sorts of blame coming both ways and no one's talking about the using. I think the therapist has to be very adept and one of the things, again, I think really, really works well from our um, integrating the way we work systemically is we know that in any given moment, when we are experiencing the cycle beginning to kind of um, escalate, there's a beginning point, there's a cue, right? And if we're listening carefully, we could say, yeah, the moment, help me understand a moment, if I were talking to a partner, for example, that your partner, that you found your partner had spent the entire paycheck at the bar again. So I'm deliberately now bringing drinking in, right? And we'll, we'll go through an entire arc of assembling that person's emotional experience, ending up with the using partner's action tendency, right? We'll process that, do an enactment if possible. And I find that's a nice back doorway. I start with the using partner's action tendency, then start constructing and assembling I'm sorry, the non-using partner's um, experience, to begin with the non-using partner's action tendency to start making sense of the using partner's action tendency. And when I've constructed it and hopefully begun to engage a little uh, core emotion that I would normally connect to the action tendency, I often insert, so when all of this horrible stuff is going on for you, this must be kind of the moment where you would grab a drink or you would hop on your computer and use porn. I'm inserting that. The nice thing that's happening in the background as we're working, we bring so much empathy to people's emotional experience. So as we're helping them construct and assemble their emotional experience, 
find a narrative for it. We're also empathizing with them. We're walking through the whole thing. Maybe they engage with primary emotion. Again, we empathize. So that addict using partner, however we want to call this, often feels like an identified patient. But here we are speaking directly to their humanity through empathizing, and then we connect. We connect at this point. So is this the place where you use? Yes, it is. Well, I know your partner is very aware of the using that I think you use as perhaps a solution. I might not use that literally, but that's what I'm implying to all this pain and distress. But I don't think they know about the pain and distress that I see in your eyes. Could you talk to them? So I go through a back door and I will try to oftentimes um, assemble and distill the non-using partner's experience and then start from the action tendency of that non-using partner to begin to validate and humanize mm -hmm. the uh, using partner's internal experience that lends itself ultimately to the action tendency that I bring in. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. I love that. The idea of the backdoor, because oftentimes with addiction, when, you know, denial is running deep, <laughs> you yeah. can't go through the front door, you know, and the front door would be like, so what do you, what are you feeling when you're using this addiction? Why are you going to the bar? You know, we can't, we can't ask things like that because obviously it's going to put them on the defensive. In EFT, we always say don't use why questions and a lot of therapy anyway. But um, I love this idea of inserting the behavioral strategies into the cycle and kind of using them as the cues or triggers for the partner and constructing this experience and you're laying in the human experience, the humanity. I love that you say that several times, we're really bringing in each person's humanity mm -hmm. and building empathy and empathy is huge. I think a lot of therapists get caught not being able to empathize with the addicted patient. Um, and, you know, they, they, it's easier to empathize with the other person who's being impacted by the addiction, but again, there is a problem that the addiction is a solution to, and it's, you know, usually pain, always mm -hmm. pain, I guess. And when we remember to kind of keep that on the dashboard in our line of sight as we're driving forward into the therapeutic process is that the addict is also in pain, and that's what they're using it as a solution to. And when we can go get curious and go on an exploration of Again, what is the solution to tiptoeing through the back door? I love that idea through the back door. Mm -hmm. Then we can start to understand and, and unpack their pain, but we have to be able to find empathy for both partners, okay. especially, you know, in couples therapy, because if you only, you know, share empathy with one partner, you're probably going to lose the other partner. They're going to disengage and think you're on my partner's side. You're not here. You can't help me. And that's not good. We have to hold both partners, even the one who, most obviously in the cycle might be doing more of the hurtful behavior, but we got to remember that that's underneath that is pain. It's a hurting person. Right. And that's not excusing their hurtful behavior. I love how in there, in no way did you say we're justifying we're understanding. Understanding is different than justifying and right. you're putting it in a very non pathological kind of way, not saying, well, you know, you're just a jerk for using and, you know, or, or, you know, don't you know how hurtful this is to your partner? You know, you do it in such a loving and empathic way that, that validates their experience, but illuminates what's happening and the, the impact um, on the relationship that it's, ha that it's having. I really love that. 
that loving empathic stance you're talking about is often so novel and foreign to using partner. Um, I'm not even just speaking in terms of family of origin and history, but within the system where addiction has been kind of sparking at least part of the dance, again, they're seen as the bad guy, the bad girl, right? And we're all, we're all of a sudden saying, no, there's a really, there's a human being in there who's hurting, right? And that feels very like a, a breath of fresh air and again, humanizing. And as our alliance continues to build, we can take stronger and stronger risks with people to be very directive, set limits, prescriptive with interventions about them stopping using and that kind of thing, but that's down the road. The other piece to all of this is I keep knocking on this other door about the identified patient, and that goes back into shame. So there's a, a video clip I show in the addiction training, and this man, the couple, thankfully, is very in love. They really love each other, but his addiction is a real beast. It's a real, so he would go on benders and disappear and go incommunicado for many, many hours. I don't think it's days, but his wife and his mom, too, she calls mom, would go into a panic and be calling hospitals, police stations, driving around the town trying to find him. They didn't know what was going on. And what he started talking about is he said, there's a moment where I cross the line. I know I've crossed the line. In my mind, I know I'm hurting you and I can't help that. So I feel so bad. The shame takes me over in such a way that I have to keep using in order to quell that and quiet that. And then I know I cross this line and it just gets worse and worse. And I end up hurting her more, which makes me feel even worse, right? And then she gets pissed at him, of course and that's part of the dance, and then she hurts even worse. I mean, then he hurts even worse, and he covers it with addiction, you know, well, cocaine and alcohol in this case. So there's this nasty, nasty self-fulfilling prophecy, right? I cross a line, I hurt the person I love, that's the attachment piece. I actually do take it to heart so much so I can't bear it. Mm -hmm. The only way to make good, because now I don't have a leg to stand on to turn to my partner and say I'm hurting or I can't bring this to you, is I've got to self-medicate. And that's where it becomes a vicious circle, right? And, and that is the danger of shame and the potency of shame in those patterns and processes. But we can slow that down and we can bring those processes alive. And if we have the partner of someone that's been using a lot who can be responsive, those are incredibly healing moments and incredibly impactful. The only other thing I would say, though, I am a strong believer of also having lots of other resources when working with addiction. I think people having some kind of groups they're going to or individual therapists they're going to, I think having meaningful work that they're doing, um, even physical, doing something for physical fitness. I just think it's such a comprehensive mm -hmm. type of approach we need to take. But what we are very skilled at is getting to the heart of the distress and creating relational solutions to that before it's just self-self. I'm gonna self-medicate when I hurt. Right, I really love that. So, you know, you're talking about the shame spiral. What you described is the hallmark of the shame spiral. It's like, I feel bad already, so I self-medicate, but then when I self-medicate, I cross a line and I hurt you more, and so I feel worse, so I have to medicate more to deal with that. So it's just layer upon layer of hurt and coping Mm -hmm. And it's a cycle like a hamster wheel. They, they just can't get off of it. They don't know how to get off of it. 
And it's scary because it would mean confronting all of these painful things that they're using the addiction for. And when you have no frame, no, you know, handlebars to support you as you're trying to take this really scary and risky, you know, it's, it's almost like asking them to dive off a trapeze and, you know, believe that there's a net underneath and, and they've never had a net before. So they think they're just going to splat on the ground. Of course, that's too risky, right? Why would I take that risk? And, and, you know, for them, it's, it's like a, you know, again, it's that survival part that kicks on that says danger, 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 we've got to protect ourselves. And, and I love how you described all of that. And, you know, the way that you put it into the cycle and also you described this comprehensive approach. I, I kind of, let's say maybe holistic approach because you know, as we say, shame, you know, impacts people, causes people to hide, right? And if we, and they say the antidote to shame is exposure. So if we don't take that holistic approach, we can almost enable the process, right? To remain hidden and not get that change experience right by helping them go and relate to others helping them to it's like building that extra scaffolding and yeah yeah necessary i mean we can we can create really profound experiences and we do in our therapy and being able to have loving attachment um with one's uh, attachment figure become kind of the replacement for uh what was historically self-regulation through again, substances or processes, that is powerful. But, you know, the neurobiology around all of this, these are well-worn pathways. And so to have other support where people can evaluate those things, talk about what it's like when they get triggered, talk about it's like when they get, there's a craving, find other ways of taking themselves on honestly when they're out in the world. Um, that takes some time. That takes some time. So we, I think we are offering something really at the heart and the core of addiction. And I think having some other support is invaluable. You know, I've, I've come to from a place of thinking it was only what we were doing, but I think people need more. And I think what we're doing is truly the, the center, like the locus of everything. Because within that, underneath the shame, is that sense of self and identity. And it's through our relationship with others, like the baby gazing into the mother's eyes, getting a sense of identity and mattering. Create those experiences with enough potency and repetition, that really does start to take hold. And I think giving people some other, I like your, your bicycle handlebars thing or training wheel, you know, offering some more things to help people move into the world in a way where they're more supported as they're getting stable with this can be so helpful. Right. And that, that uh, repetition is kind of like Sue talks about circling the airport because the first few times we cover this in our work, it's like their amygdala says, no, no, don't take this in, don't take this in. And then eventually it goes to maybe, maybe, maybe oh, okay, maybe I could take this in, right? And I love how you talked about, you know, interacting with the world more honestly. And that, that is an extremely vulnerable thing for people with shame and heavy addiction because they hide behind the the protective layer of the addiction right and so to ask them to be themselves in the world and believe that who they are is a valuable human being to other people and that they don't need the addiction to hide behind is extremely vulnerable that's them going out on the limb and that's got to take great courage and something that we build up to that's right 
So, Michael, this has been fabulous. And, you know, there's just so much that we could say about this, but you offer training and you have some exciting research coming up. So can you tell us more about your research and about the training that you offer? So, yes, all of the above. So um, I had the good fortune of kind of helping create the structure for and facility for a three-year research project in which actually an EFT student who was in core skills, who was all but dissertation, asked if I had a topic. And I said, well, I've kind of set the stage by training a handful of very well-trained EFT therapists who work in a treatment center to be able to see what the impact of stabilizing people's relationships through secure bonding would be on also stabilizing recovery. So we worked for three years, uh, got to evaluate every single week all the therapy tapes, and that data is now being analyzed. It's taking a very long time to analyze for some reason. But anyway, we did finish that. I learned a ton clinically, which is what I've um, integrated into the addiction training uh, masterclass. Um, and then a, a lot of the work that I've been doing with um, Sylvina Irwin on trauma has also really informed this. So the research project, I have to actually touch base with that dissertation. He's actually kind of got it now um, about where we are with that. And I'm very curious about those results. That was three years of really interesting work. Um, in May, I'm doing the trauma training um, in New Orleans. And I think Parker Sternberg is the contact person for that. In end of March, I'll be in Sacramento doing uh, the addiction and EFT training with the Sacramento EFT community. A week later, I'll be up in Vancouver doing the EFT uh, and addiction training with the Vancouver community. And then in October, this all this year, um, I will be in Bukhavatan doing the um, addiction and EFT training. And then a couple that haven't been quite set in uh, 2020, one here in Atlanta on addiction and EFT, and then one in Kansas City on addiction and EFT. So that's really growing. And the thing I'm most excited about right now is there is a potential that EFT is going to be used as a core curriculum for a new series of treatment centers that are being created around the country. And they're consulting me to help develop that curriculum and help people who have struggled with addictions have access to their emotional experience, understand their attachment strategies where addiction is concerned, and also have ways of actually learning how to implement effective attachment strategies as a core part of this curriculum in these addiction treatment centers. So we'll see. I, I, I'm just beginning these conversations now. I'm very as you can see, excited about that. It'd be so cool to apply this to a much broader system. Well, congratulations, Michael, on that. They certainly have the right guy for the job. And it's so so wonderful that, you know, EFT is it's catching fire now and, and it's spreading in a wonderful, beautiful kind of way. And more and more um, clinicians are starting to recognize its efficacy and necessity. And they're using it in these you know, centers that you said are springing up all over the country. And, you know, so if folks want to find your training schedule, they can also, if they want to have you come out to their part and do a training, they can get in touch with you and, and uh, schedule something with you, correct? Sure. My, my uh, website's very easy. It's michaelbarnettlpc.com. Very easy to find. Um, and as some of these other trainees get, um, the dates get established, they'll be on there as well. Um, but yes, I'll be happy to come speak elsewhere about this. It's great. It's Really fun weekend trainings, yeah. And is there a website for the Atlanta EFT Center? There is. It's ASAFT, uh, Atlanta Center for EFT.com. And um, both 
my trainings will be on there as well as the master classes that the Atlanta Center is hosting. Um, we've drawn from a lot of the different trainers um, around the country for the last few years. They've been great. Perfect. Perfect. So, guys, make sure that you check out his website or the Atlanta Center for EFT if you want to check out some of his uh, training schedule and attend a workshop. They are excellent. I have gone to one myself. So, make sure that if you haven't signed up, you do. And will you post your um, your research results and, and subsequent articles and such on your website as well? I will. I will as soon as that data gets analyzed. It's taking a really long time, but yes, I look yes. forward to doing yeah. And if anyone's ever done research, you understand that analyzing data can take a long time. It's quite a fair of a job, but you know, thank you guys again for staying tuned to our episode about um, shame. And I just want to do a quick recap before we close for today, because I forgot to do that. And we always do that. But so we talked about how shame and addiction are very closely intertwined and how to empathically put some of the behavioral strategies into the cycle using the back door to help the addicted client take ownership, but in a non-pathologizing kind of way that gives them, really validates their humanity and helps them to know that their pain is also important and, and matters. And we're working on building that scaffolding and the empathy to work with the shame and addiction and, and help rebuild that core belief system that says I'm unworthy and I'm, I'm not a good human being. And um, if folks need training, they can go to michaelbarnettlpc.com, asef.com. We're going to put the links to the videos or to the websites in the description for this video. And before we close, Michael, is there anything else that you want to make sure gets said? I think we covered a pretty wide arc. So um, sure. thank you for having me. This is really a delightful conversation with you. Thank you so much, and we are happy to have you back anytime you're willing to come back. So thank you so much. And thank you so much to all of our viewers. Make sure that you keep watching because more videos are on the way.